0: So the section begins with, of course, that word therefore, which means you always have to go backwards and see what's the therefore, therefore. See how it connects to the context. And if you remember, last week we talked about, uh, we talked about this new way to think that our mindset needs to change, that, that God wants us, because of Jesus, God wants us to look at life from his perspective. And so we saw in the last part of the section in verses 22 to 24 this idea of putting off the old man and putting on the new man. We talked about having a mindset that we can change, that because of Jesus, we can change. We can be transformed from the inside out. That Christianity isn't just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It is actually a, a, a reality of God connecting with us through Jesus to make us like Jesus so we get to enjoy Jesus forever. That's what he's doing. And so Paul is now going to get into the real nitty-gritty of, of okay, you've, you're, you're learning how to think different. Here's how you need to change. Here's how the transformation gets really practical. And again, this is not just about us saying, okay, now start doing all these things. These are commands. These are things that we should begin to do, but this is us beginning to recognize what the Holy Spirit is leading us toward, how being made like Jesus looks in everyday life. Specifically, we're going to look at three areas today, three areas that I think Paul brings up, uh, areas of transformation. One is our communication, how we speak to one another. One is going to be our emotions. How do we deal with emotions? What does it mean to be a Christian and have emotions? And also, he's going to deal with our work ethic, Some very practical things that God wants to be involved. Now, as I read those things off, as I mention those things, some of you might go, okay, I'm pretty good in all those areas. You know, I'm okay. I don't blab like John does. And, you know, I work really hard. I have a real job, none like John. And I'm not emotional and cry at every sermon like John. So I think I'm okay. No, we all need to be continually transformed. And so let's see what the Holy Spirit wants to do. So, picking up again, verse 25, our, ca- our communication is being transformed, and Paul says this is how. He says, therefore, putting away lying, let each of you speak truth to his neighbor. And he gives a reason why, notice, for we are members of one another. Now, now when it says, put it away lying, it, it, it's actually a little bit stronger in the original language. It's basically, stop lying. So the assumption is, what are you doing with each other? You're lying. We do this. We put on a facade. We act like everything's okay. We put our best foot forward, which basically means we lie. Now, I'm not saying that we should, every time we get together, just kind of blah, everything that we're going through. But there is a reality that God calls us to be honest in our communication, to stop lying. And he says, "This is why. Why do we need to stop lying? Why do we need to pursue speaking what's true to each other? Why?" He says, "Because we're members one of another." What does that mean? Well, Paul's going back to this body analogy that he used earlier on, and uh, going back to this idea that we're one body. And he's he's wanting to make the point that you know none of us is independent of the other. Okay, so you might think you know I'm not I don't really have a very important place. In fact. That's one of the big mistakes I think we make with this whole metaphor of the body is we keep thinking, well, what am I? Am I like a a mouth or a hand or a foot or an eyelash? I mean, what am I? And we're so worried about what our place is that we forget. In one sense, it's not as important as that we know that we are in our place, that we are, are part of the body. And being part of the body means that we recognize that all of us need the whole. We are interdependent on one another. And so he, he begins this issue of our communication being transformed by saying we need to recognize our interdependence, that it's important that we communicate together because, listen, if your, one part of your body is broken or hurting or diseased, it needs to communicate with the rest of the body if it's going to be healed. And if it's not, if it doesn't do that, what happens? It spreads. The injury gets worse. The disease goes further. So it's the same with us. We have to be honest about where we're at. We have to be truthful about where we're at. We've got to communicate that to each other. God calls us to this. This is hard for us. We, we really, in the West, we really hold fast to our privacy. We don't really want people to know our junk. And, and there's, there's common sense to whom you say what to, but there's a reality that we're called to be honest with each other, to communicate truth with each other. If you don't understand something, if you're not getting something, it doesn't just affect you, it affects the whole body potentially. And so, Paul's saying, listen, if our communication is going to be transformed, we have to recognize there's an interdependence so that what I say or don't say has the potential to really affect the rest of the body. Now, if you drop down to verse 29, he continues with this whole idea of communication. He says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, notice he says, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So Paul makes it clear, the goal of our communication as Christians, the goal of our speech one to another is to communicate grace. What's grace? Grace. Well, you know, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is God's unmerited favor towards us. Grace is how God accepts us because of Jesus. But grace is also God's divine enabling. Grace is how we do what God's called us to do. So what does this mean as far as communication goes? Well, he starts this off by saying, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. And this is usually when this, where the preacher starts saying, stop cussing. Don't use foul language. Now, that's, there's an application there, all right? I want to be very clear. It's, not, it's distasteful for us as believers to use foul language. If, you, if we were to take time and, and go through kind of all that the New Testament talks about our communication, you'd see that specifically Paul brings up and uses language that communicates uh, that we shouldn't use words that communicate uh, sexual innuendo or, or sexual joking or we shouldn't use foul language. Now, we have to be careful some of this because some of this, is cultural. It's it's amazing. Like I've noticed that um, here, people uh, Christians here are a bit sensitive about the word C-R-A-P. I A P. I I didn't say it. I just spelled it. Okay. <laughs> because they think, well, it's, it's kind of oh, it's, a, it's a bit of a harsh word. But then Christians here, I've met a lot of Christians here who would say things like, "I've had a hell of a day," and it's just the opposite in America. In the, in America, you would hear a guy from the pulpit say C A R P, and he thinks it's a like kind of a gentle way to to use what that word means. But they would never say, I've had a hell of a day because hell's a serious thing and you wouldn't use it in that context. Now, to be honest, it's probably better for us to do, not to say either of those things, okay? All right? But the point is, the point is, Paul's saying, it's, this is not just about don't use bad words. Because if, let's be honest, if you look at some of the language the Scripture uses, it'll make you blush. There's, just, there's some Scriptures in the Old Testament that I purposely didn't refer to and didn't give the reference to because they're so vulgar that I'm embarrassed almost by them. Some pretty graphic things that are said, the way a a prophet sort of says, here's how your idolatrous heart works, you know. And when Paul says, you know, I've counted all things as rubbish, the word he uses is dung, it's excrement. Now, we say rubbish because it's more polite, but actually it should be excrement. When Jesus says, you fox, He's not saying you're a hottie, He's saying you're a dirty dog, there's something wrong with you, is what he's saying to Herod. So the language sometimes that people use might be, in Scripture, might feel a little bit odd for us culturally, and so we've got to be careful that we're not being too cultural about this, okay? In fact, Paul's main point here is it's not about the words they use, it's how you use your words. So when he says, listen, let no corrupt communication Fill out your mouth, but except here's what you do instead, he says. But what is good for necessary edification, what builds up. That's what the word edification means. Now I need to say something else, actually, before I get into that point. Something that's really, I think, important. And that is when it comes to the words that we use, we need to recognize that our words indeed have power. Proverbs 18:21 says this: the tongue can bring death or life, those who love to talk will reap the consequences, either good or bad is the idea. Now, there is a whole branch of Christianity that takes this idea that words have power and takes the truth that when God speaks, things happen, and in a very unbiblical, dare I say, heretical way, morphs those things together. So that they say that, you know, hey, God speaks, and what wasn't becomes reality. We follow God, so we speak, and what wasn't becomes reality. That's a heresy. Only God's words can change reality. You need to understand that. You can say all day long that, you, you know, claim whatever you want to claim, say whatever you want to be truth. If it's not reality, it ain't going to become reality just by saying it, Okay? only god's words can change reality however listen our words can change perspectives our words cannot manufacture something but they can be a way that we grab onto something there is power in us saying what god says not a power to create reality but a power to embrace the reality that god says do you see what i'm saying so I can't claim that God is going to pay all my bills when they're due. I can't claim that. There's no promise in Scripture that says God's going to pay all my bills when they're due. But I can claim, God, you will provide all my needs according to your riches and glory. That God will take care of me. He'll help me work it out. Part of the way God's going to help me work it out is by making sure I work. We'll get into that with a work ethic thing in a minute. But there's a reality that we have to know that we can't just say whatever we want to say, whatever we think is going to be good for us, and that's what reality is going to be. No. But we have to see what God says that we need to believe, that we need to work on, and we need to pray that. Have you ever noticed how many times, especially in the New Testament, where you see these guys praying God's Word back to Him? There's really, there's power in that. We often just think, I'm just going to pray my feelings. It's good to pray our feelings. It's good to sort of to dump our hearts out to the Lord. The psalmist says, pour out your heart to the Lord at all times. But it's also good for us to pray what God says to pray. Now, I'm saying this because I think it's important we recognize here when Paul says, speak what's necessary for edification, he's not saying, create reality with your words. But he is saying, say what God says to people. Ever been in a situation where you're thinking, I want to encourage this person? but I don't want to give them a false assurance. Do you know what I'm saying? Like someone you're not sure, are they really a believer or are they not a believer? They profess to be a believer, but they live really worldly, so I don't want to say, well, you know, God loves you, everything's fine, if they're really not really a believer or if they're totally walking as a backslider, how, how do I deal with this? One of the things that I tend to do with people is, is, is not because I'm, I'm unsure of anybody's salvation. This is, please don't think that, because if I say this to you, you're going to go, oh, no, John doesn't think I'm a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. But what I often do with people is, is, is I'm talking with them. I'll often say, "You know what? I see God's grace in your life. I see God working on you. The fact that you're wrestling with this thing is good. The fact that you're embarrassed by that sin is good. That's God's grace. I'm not saying you're you're saved, you're a Christian, everything's going to be fine. But I am saying to them, I see God working in your life. You can trust God to finish what He starts. Call out to God, and He will answer. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm saying to them what God would say to them according to the scriptures. I'm not saying to them what I want to be true necessarily or what I assume is reality. So so it's really important that we understand that our words have the ability to change people's perspective. I don't know how many times I've spoken to people or counseled people and they're going, I just feel like, and I just think that, and and I think, wait, whoa, 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 what does God say about your situation? What does God say about your situation? Let's, let's say what God says about your situation. God says, anyone who comes to Him, Jesus said, He will not cast out. Do you still have access to Jesus? Yeah, but I feel like I've done so far. Well, what does He say? I just feel like God would not really judge me. I know that, the, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm saved by grace. I understand the gospel. I'm saved by grace. God's not going to judge me. I'm going to say, well, what does God say about that? You say you're saved by grace, but then you... continuing to sleep with your girlfriend and god says fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of god that's what's god say about that we're so afraid to say what god says and yet here's the truth when we say what god says that might be the very thing that that god uses to bring faith into somebody's life to show them that they can change See, if I say something, it's not going to change reality. But if I say something and the Spirit of God takes that and he says the same thing to their hearts, which is what we're praying is happening right now, then God changes reality. He changes the condition of our hearts. So when Paul says, listen, let no communication come out of your mouth, uh, but what's good for edification, what actually helps you be like Jesus, he's saying, this is what I'm talking about. See, notice that the goal, of course, as we said before, the goal is that we would impart grace. Why? Because it's grace that changes people. It's grace. This is what John writes about Jesus in um, in John chapter 1. He says, For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but notice, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Jesus came to manifest and to make clear the grace of God. Jesus came to give us access to God's unmerited favor, to qualify us to know that we can be right with this God, that we've been chosen by this God, that we are His covenant people. That's why Jesus came. Grace. That's why Paul said earlier in Ephesians, right? You're not saved by your works. You're saved by grace through faith. We want to impart grace to people. See, our communication becomes transformed as grace becomes the goal of our communication. I want to communicate... Grace to people. This is why, again, the proverb says, Some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing. We call people to repentance. Why? Not just so that they can avoid hell, but because we know that God forgives. (laughs) Because we know that there's grace. We say, Look, you got to stop doing that. God forgives, and God can change you. Go to God. He can change you. Turn back to God. That's what repent means. Turn back to God. God can change you. We speak grace. It's funny how how often as Christians, we always are thinking, okay, I know I'm supposed to be different now, so tell me what not to do. Oh, John said, don't cuss. Don't cuss. I got to make sure I don't cuss. That's not the point. The point is not just that you stop cussing, but that you communicate grace to people. You speak of God's saving grace. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. That's how He wants to change us. Now, the truth is, speaking grace, applying that grace takes great wisdom. And the good news is, James told us that God's promised to give us wisdom if we ask. But it does take great wisdom. Paul writes this in Colossians chapter 4. He says, walk in wisdom toward those who are on the outside, redeeming the time, He says, notice, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer each one. In other words, it's not about memorizing certain verses about grace and just going, oh, uh, here's this verse I know about grace. (laughs) It's about letting the Holy Spirit lead you and saying, Lord, how can I communicate grace to this person? You know, sometimes communicating grace to people simply means building a bridge for relationships. It doesn't mean everything that you say that comes out of your mouth has to be about Jesus. That's not what Paul's saying here. But it does mean everything that comes out of our mouth should be about helping people to know Jesus. Do you see the difference? So if I'm talking to somebody I meet on the street, I remember I met this guy uh, <coughs> who was, uh, had a skateboard. I'm like, oh, you're a skater. And he's like, ah, oh, this is just a longboard. I'm actually a surfer. I'm like, oh, dude, I surf too. And we start talking about surfing. We talk about surfing about 15 minutes. And I'm hoping a door opens up for, for the gospel. So he says, well, where are you from? And I said, I'm from California. We talked about surfing in California. It, we, we keep talking. And he finally says, so what brought you here? I'm like, well, actually, I'm a pastor of a church. Do you go to church? No, I am not into that. I'll see you later. And he walked away. <laughs> now, there, it didn't go anywhere. But the truth was, if, I just, if he would have put a skateboard, hey, you can't, skating's not going to get you to heaven. You need Jesus. He would have walked away even faster. Yeah. The thing is, we had a good conversation. If I ever see that dude in the street again, I'm going to say, surfer dude, what's up? and maybe that's going to open up a new door for conversation. Do you see what I'm saying? Communicating grace is not just saying grace, the word grace, or the gospel every time you speak to somebody. It's wanting your communication to lead to the gospel of grace. This is what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Think about how this applies to how we communicate with each other as Christians. It's amazing how quick we are to withhold grace from one another. It's amazing how quick we are to speak words of judgment or condemnation to each other. God wants our communication to be transformed so that we are applying grace with wisdom and we're seeing people learn to trust in Jesus who brought grace. This is why he he makes a statement in verse 30. He says, and do not grieve... The Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to grieve someone? It means to make them sad. It means to make them feel, man, that's why. <laughs> can you grieve a machine? Can you grieve? Can you grieve electricity? No, you can only grieve a person. This is one of the reasons why we are convinced that in a triune God, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, the Spirit being a person, not just some force that flows from God. And the Spirit is at work. Listen, the Holy Spirit is here right now working in our hearts. He's not observing what's happening. He is working in our hearts. And Paul would say, don't grieve Him. Don't push Him away. Don't ignore what he's trying to say to you. It's the Spirit of God who taps in your heart and says, Yeah, he's the one who reminds you about how maybe you haven't done some of this stuff or where you could step up and grow. He's the one that convicts you of that thought of unbelief. He's the one that's convincing you that you can trust what these words say. The Holy Spirit's working. Don't grieve him. Submit to the work that he's wanting to do in your heart. That's how our communication is being transformed. Really, that's how all of us is being, every part of us is being transformed, is by the work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk more about the work of the Holy Spirit when we get to chapter 5. But let's move on now from our communication being transformed to our emotions being transformed. Look at verse 26. Paul here is quoting Psalm 4. We'll read it in a minute. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Now he's quoting. Uh, the Greek version of the Psalms. Now, I'm using the New King James. New King James does the same thing. Look what it says in Psalm 4, 4 and 5. It says, Be angry and do not sin. Notice, meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Offer sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord." The reason I'm giving this context is to make clear what Paul is saying and what he's not saying. Paul is not saying, listen, you have a right to be angry, or I command you to be angry. That is not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying it's okay that you're angry. Paul's wanting us to recognize that it's it's good for us. It's appropriate for us to learn how to process our emotions. It's good for us to acknowledge that we have emotions. When God saves you, He doesn't say, okay, stop feeling, put on a smiley, hey, walk around like some kind of goofball clown with a smile on your face all the time. He doesn't say that. And in fact, it's interesting though, that's not how we are. Oftentimes, you know what we're like? We're just the opposite. Oh, I need to be serious now, I'm a Christian. I've been baptized in lemon juice. I'm going to walk around sourpuss all the time. Now, the thing is, happy is not superior to sad. Sad is not superior to happy. Anger is not superior to peaceful. Peaceful is not superior to anger. Emotions are just what they are. They are emotions. They are part of us being made in the image of God. God has emotions. So, when He says, be angry and don't, do not sin, He's saying, listen, it's, it's right, it's appropriate for you to, to acknowledge your emotions, but He's saying it's not good to be dictated by our emotions. Look at um, down in verse 31. Verse 31, He brings up anger again. In fact, not just anger, but He, he uses the same word for anger there in verse... Uh, uh, these two verses, but he also brings up every sort of emotion connected to anger. Notice he says, verse 31, let all bitterness. Isn't that usually why we retain anger? Isn't that anger retained as bitterness? This person made me mad. I just, I just can't let it go. Wrath. What's wrath? It's when we blurt something out. And I'm famous for that. Anger, same words. Clamor. You know what clamor is? It's complaining under your breath. Stinky. Nobody ever does dishes. i got to do the dishes. You know, pick, pick, pick up both of themselves. No one's ever here on time to help. Clamoring. Anybody here ever do that? <coughs> <coughs> evil speaking. Slander. You know, Christians, we're great at this. So you can pray. Did you hear about? Oh, I think this is what's happening with them. Gossip, slander. It's evil speaking. He says malice. Malice is a heart that wants something bad to happen to somebody else. Don't think you're above that. So, so what Paul's point here is this, he's, he's being really simple, he's saying, listen, he's saying, it's good for us to acknowledge our emotions, but it's not good to be dictated by our emotions. That's why the Proverbs says this, Proverbs 23, 19, should be on the screen, he says, hear, my son, and be wise, guide your heart in the way. If you don't lead your heart, your heart will lead you. If you don't lead your emotions, your emotions will lead you. The Scripture's not teaching us to be less emotional or even more emotional. That's more of our personality than anything else, usually. But what the Scripture is telling us, listen, is that our emotions need to be transformed as we learn to uh, appropriately process them. Okay, why am I feeling this way? Lord, how does the gospel affect how I'm feeling right now? It's funny because I felt really prepared for this message this week, uh, really prepared. I had this thing done in the can like uh, Thursday midday or Thursday Thursday afternoon. I was like, yes, I'm ready. I'm excited about the message. Let it just kind of simmer, came back to it this morning, and God's just bringing all this stuff up in my heart. All these things about where I fall short in this, and it was a bit of a stressful morning. I mean, Sundays usually are a bit of a, a challenge, to be fair. But I just was having a hard time. And I'm like, wow, oh, so, I feel so frustrated. Why do I feel so frustrated? And it was like the Lord saying, because you're about to preach about processing your emotions. So I want you to process these emotions right now through the gospel. And it was amazing how I started thinking about why I was frustrated. How really I was frustrated because I feel like people treat me like a servant. Oh, wait a second. <laughs> I am a servant. I'm supposed to be. I was frustrated because I was thinking, "Come on God, you're supposed to be in control." Oh wait a second. You are in control. <laughs> I was frustrated because I, wanted, I want things to go a certain way, and the truth is, what I really need is for God to have His will be done. It's amazing how, when we realize where these frustrations come from, as we process them through the gospel of who God is and what God's done through us for us through Christ how we're able to deal with our emotions. I'm not saying that, oh, instantly I was happy again. I'm not saying that, but I was able to let things go. I was able to move forward. I was able to receive prayer. See, God transforms our emotions not by removing them or saying here's the good ones and here's the bad ones, but by teaching us by His Spirit to process those emotions through the gospel so that the emotional responses that we have are appropriate. When, when Peter uses the term joy inexpressible and full of glory, do you think that's describing emotion? How many of you guys think that's describing emotion? Raise your hand if you think it's describing emotion. Raise your hand if you're not sure. This is the problem. We're, we're, we're unsure about emotion. Joy inexpressible and full of glory is emotion. And it's not, I am rejoicing now. It's not. So why is it that we have a hard time processing the fact that we don't sometimes feel emotion? How do we process that? Do we just go, well, you know, I don't want to be like those people that are really emotional, to be kind of excused away? Or do we say, well, maybe I'm not really a Christian, maybe I'm not really full of the Spirit. Do we just kind of condemn ourselves? Or do we go before God and say, Lord, I I know in my head you're worthy to be rejoiced in. And I know in my head that what you've done for me is, is enough to make me your child. I know that that's what your word says, and I know you call me to rejoice. So would you do in me whatever it takes that I would learn to rejoice in you? And Lord, help me to sing for joy even if I don't feel it. Help me to thank you for what you've done even if I don't feel thankful. See, we need to process The emotions that flare up, we also need to process the lack of emotion when it needs to be there. God wants to change us. He wants our emotions to be transformed. Was Jesus emotional? Read the gospels, man. Mm. it's, It's interesting when it says when it says that Jesus was moved with compassion, it's a very descriptive word. It means that his insides were just like, oh, he's like, oh man. These people are so needy. You'll see a time where it says, and Jesus was grieved in his spirit. And we think, oh, yeah, he's like, hmm. No, he's just like, the idea is he's like angry and sad at the same time. Oh, you guys. Were his emotions wrong? No, but his emotions were per- perfect as the perfect man, as one who was submitted to the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. God wants to teach us how to respond emotionally. Think about as we allow the Holy Spirit to do this, how it would change how we treat each other. They used to talk about, in the 50s, IQ tests. Now we talk about IQ tests and EQ tests. You guys know what an EQ test is? About emotional intelligence. About the ability to know how to have empathy with people. We need the Holy Spirit to teach us how to do that, not some test. To teach us how to do it the way Jesus would have us do it. So it's important that we recognize our emotions are transformed as we learn to appropriately process those emotions. But also, look at verse 27. They're transformed as we're aware of the devil's schemes. Because the thing is, the reason we need to have that transformation is the enemy loves to use our emotions to manipulate us. Notice what he says, be angry, do not sin, verse 26. Verse 27, nor give place to the devil. Don't give opportunity to the devil. Some of your versions might say, don't give the devil a foothold. See, the the truth is, the enemy knows how to manipulate emotions. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to them, and he, he, man, he just, he really dislays them because they're allowing things to happen in their church that are completely unacceptable. They're allowing a man in their church to have a sexual relationship with his stepmom. Yeah, it's gross, I know, it's dodgy. And they're going, well, there's grace, and they're kind of just letting it go. And Paul's going, no. If the guy won't repent, boot him out. They're being like, and so they, they oh, okay. And so they boot him out. And then when Paul writes this, uh, the second time, probably the third time, but when, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, okay, the guy's repented. You've got to bring him back. And, he, and here's what he says: listen, in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, When you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit. Notice, so that Satan will not outsmart us. For we are familiar with his evil schemes. What's his evil schemes? To get us not to forgive. To get us split apart. To get us so focused on our emotions. That guy deceived us. He made us think it was okay for him to do that not processing your emotions through the gospels. No, you deceived yourself, and then you rightly removed him, and then when he came back, you're deceiving yourself again, thinking Christ's cross doesn't cover that. Are you guys following me? Our emotions are transformed as we're aware of the devil's schemes. And also notice verse 32, as we forgive like we've been forgiven. Look at verse 32. Paul says, and be kind... To one another, the word "kind" there—it's the same word that's used in Romans chapter two, verse four, where it says that the Lord's, that God's kindness, leads us to repentance. So, kindness is not just niceness. It's a—it's a—it's a practical commitment to someone else's good. That's kindness. I'm—I'm I'm concerned for them. That's kindness. I was talking to Fumi yesterday, uh, catching up and praying with her about the situation. And she said, "I just can't stop thinking about Joe's heart, where he's at spiritually. I just, I still, you know, the relationship's over as far as marriage goes, but I want him to 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 know the Lord. And I just, my heart breaks for him. That's kindness. That's a spirit induced kindness. Because I know if I was her, I'd be tempted to go. Mm-hmm. And the truth is." We want to see people who have left the fellowship to be restored. What brings people to repentance? The kindness of God. How do people see the kindness of God? Through the work of the Spirit and the kindness of His people. Be kind to one another. Notice, tender-hearted. I confess how easily I can become hard-hearted. Hard-hearted for me doesn't manifest itself in like, oh, I can't stand that person. I just stop thinking about them. This this is what I do. I'm not saying, I don't know if any of you guys do this, but I tend to, if someone's burned me, I go, okay, that's cool, no problem. They're out, gone. I don't even think about it anymore. That's hard-heartedness. Being tender-hearted means you still feel easily, even when you've been wronged. Again, not controlled by our emotions, but still feeling easily. Notice he says, even as you have to forgive one another. This is what it needed to be. We need to forgive each other. Why? Even as God in Christ forgave you. In other words, our emotions are transformed, guys, as in kindness, in tenderheartedness, we forgive like people who have been forgiven. Do you know why we have a hard time forgiving people? It's not because the offense, that we see the offense done against us as too big. Often the offenses done against us are pretty big. It's that we see our offenses done against God as too small. Mm. This is why we don't forgive. Because if we realized how, how, how great and how often we offend our holy God by our actions and inactions, And then we realize that he uh, offers us mercy over and over again; that he forgives us. We go, "Oh Lord, who am I not to forgive?" Jesus told two parables to bring this out. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to kind of just—they'll be on the screen at least the sort of the concluding verses of these two parables. One's in Luke seven. You can look it up later. And in Luke seven, you see this woman who's, who's crying at Jesus' feet and wiping his feet with her hair, and this woman's a sinner. And so, Simon the Pharisee, whose house it's in happening, he's like, if Jesus was a prophet, he'd know this one was a sinner, you know, he wouldn't let her touch him. And, and so, Jesus says, Simon, he knows his, Simon's thoughts, and so Jesus says, Simon, there's two sons, or, I'm sorry, there, sorry, there's two debtors, uh, one owed this much, one owed this much, both, the master forgave both these debtors, who, who do you think loved him more? And Simon says, well, I suppose the one who was forgiven more. He says, you said right. He says, you haven't done anything for me since I've come in, not even the common courtesy of having my feet washed. But this woman is washing my feet with her tears. She loves much because she's forgiven much. Listen, he says, I tell you, her sins, as they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who's forgiven little shows only little love. Is he saying people that are better, they don't really know how to love? No, he's saying people who think they're better thrown out of love it's when we recognize how sinful we actually are against this holy god and how quick he is to forgive us that we're able to forgive each other can you see what we're talking about here transformation this is not just about okay what emotions does servants church feel are, are acceptable to express i'll just do that this is not about just, okay, what communication does servant church think is acceptable for me to do, and I'll just express that. No, this is about God changing us, making us like Jesus. Practically transforming us into the image of Jesus. Now, last verse, we're almost done. Verse 28. Almost feels out of place. He's talking about all this stuff about communication and emotion and relationships and then he brings up this issue of work but let's be honest work is where a lot of our relationships begin or form we spend more time in work and so it's natural for us to have relationships with, with co-workers at least we should want that also if you think about it what causes a lot of emotion Don't, doesn't work one of the most frustrating things in your life or at times the most satisfying thing in your life when, when you have a good day at work you're like man what a great day it was today so it fits actually Look what Paul says about work, how our work ethic needs to be transformed. And I'm going to say some things that you're going to probably go, yeah, we already know that. We already do that, John. We're British, right? Okay, well, listen. He says, let him who stole steal no longer, but let, rather let him labor. Now, Paul's writing, of course, to people that were thieves, But he's not saying this only applies to thieves. Because here's the reality. Whether you're an employee or an employer, you are tempted to steal. Here's what I mean. Employees steal through pilfering, that's actually taking stuff, or through lack of productivity. Don't you? Isn't that what we do? If you are at work and you're checking Facebook every 10 minutes you're not being productive. If you're letting that story of the weekend at the water cooler go on for an extra 20 minutes, you're not being productive. If you waste your time and think, you know what, if I stretch this out, I can get another hour of pay, you're not being productive. You're actually stealing from your boss. Do you understand that? You go, yeah, but John, you don't know how bad my boss is. Well, listen to this. This is Titus chapter 2. Listen to this. Paul writes, slaves. You're not a slave, it's not that bad. Slaves must always obey their masters and do their best to please them. They must not talk back nor steal, but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. That's the Christian Protestant work ethic. Then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. According to Scripture, we as Jesus followers ought to be the best employees everywhere. Now, I recognize that we all fall short. This is not, uh, I'm not trying to put some sort of crazy moral standard on us, but I am saying we have to trust the Holy Spirit to make us this. Do you pray before you go to work and say, Father, help me to be a better employee? Seriously. Now, to be fair too, and this is even scarier, If you're an employer, you might be an employer going, yeah, John, get him. My employees are not good enough, you know. Well, here's how employers steal. They steal by not providing the living wage. Listen to this. James chapter 5. For listen, James says, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury satisfying your every desire you have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. A oh. bit harsher, isn't it? Christian employers ought to be the best employers out there. Why? Let me give you two reasons. One, because it's God who does the work to make us so. We're trusting the Holy Spirit to transform us this. Two, Because the gospel is at stake. The communication of the gospel is at stake. Paul says to to workers, man, make sure you're working in a way that the gospel's attractive. Man, why is it that you put up with so much junk here? You're so faithful at your work. Why is that? Because God's been so faithful to me. Because my God is a working God and he works hard to change me. I want to work hard because I want you to be changed. You know about Jesus. (laughs) What about employers? You know, as a church, obviously we don't we have very limited funds. In fact, I'm gonna take this opportunity to, to be clear about something. We are underfunded by far compared to every other evangelical church in the city. I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty, it's just a, it's a point. Our average attendance is about 150 people, including kids, and our income is way less than it should be for a church our size. So I'll let you deal with that with God. Okay. <laughs> but here's a reality. Here's a reality. Incomes Limited, so when we start bringing people on staff, I'm like, look, I could probably only pay minimum wage. And then an article comes out in the local Christian newspaper from the Bishop of Norwich that says, we as Christians should be the ones making sure we're paying a living wage. And I was so convicted. I'm like, Lord, how, how, we can, you know, the only reason we can even pay me anything is because we get money from America. How can I, and I was so convicted. And so we've been as much as we possibly can raising that salary up little by little. It's funny because we wanted to raise it to a certain amount. I won't say what it is, but someone came and complained that's too much money. You shouldn't pay them that much money. You know I'm going to say what it is. We, wanted to, we want to raise the amount for our, our, our part time workers that they would make 24,000 pro rata. And someone came to me who has a job where they make, if they worked full time, 100,000 pro rata. That's too much money. They'll be motivated by money to work. 24,000. Pro rata. These, they don't work full-time. They don't get full 24000 It's not too much. And we don't pay them that yet, but we want to go there. Why? It's a living wage. You know, the government says that's how much we ha- would have to pay someone who moved here, and we hired them from the States. We'd have to pay them 24000 Why am I bringing this up? Because work ethic isn't just about, I'm going to do good. Work ethic is, I'm going to do good, and it's about being employees who do good. As Christians, the way we view work needs to be completely different. The way we bring, the way we view money needs to be completely different. Interesting. Paul goes on to say, in verse twenty-eight, he says, "Brother, let him labor, notice working with his hands. What?" is good the word working there in fact the word for labor let him labor and then working both those words are strong they're words that mean to work into exhaustion means you work hard you're diligent now some of you at this point are going okay but I am that way And, and I want you to understand something you are that way because of the gospel's influence on this culture I'm not saying you haven't made good choices. I'm not saying good on you for working hard. I'm saying if you're that way, if you have a good work ethic, you have what historians and sociologists would call a Protestant work ethic. That's what made the West prosperous. Yeah, there was a lot of crooked things that governments and stuff did. I'm not saying that they were all innocent. But actually, what made the United States and Great Britain so prosperous compared to other European nations was the Protestant work ethic. It was saying the gospel to change the way we work. So if you work hard, it's the influence of the culture on your life. It includes your, your parents. Your parents influenced you, and that's what you did. My dad wasn't a Christian at all. And he made us work hard. I worked hard before I was ever a Christian. But there's something that we need to see that, that we can lose that very quickly. The scripture encourages us towards this work ethic. Let me read some quick scriptures to you Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and chapter 9. Listen. It says, so I saw that there was nothing better for people than to be happy in their work. This is our lot in life, is to work. And no one can bring us back to see what happens after we die. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, he says, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where we are going. Now, Ecclesiastes is written about life under the sun. It's almost like, let's say, let's just assume what's life like if there's no God. The best thing we can do is have the best job we can do. That's the best we can offer. But there's still this principle of look, man, work. Work is a good thing. God created work not as a punishment, He created work as a practice for us before the fall of man. Listen to this Proverbs chapter 14 says, In all labor there is profit, but Facebook leads only to, po- oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> idle chatter leads only to poverty. Or WhatsApp, or the gazillion other apps that I'm not hip enough to have. It's amazing how much time we can waste. Or television. There's profit and labor. Do something. I got my son Garrett a book years ago. He he said it was a great book, it was really helpful. He laughed when I gave it to him because he thought I was accusing him. I wasn't. I just thought it was a good book and I wanted him to read it. It's called Just Do Something. It's a great little book. He's like, what are you trying to say, Dad? I'm like, no, no, it's good. Read it. And it's a great book. It's about, we we so worry about what's the right thing to do, and I don't know, should I, should I? Just do something. Be active, especially for somebody else's benefit. Listen, Paul says it this way, he makes it really clear about work and the Christian. He says, even while we were with you, we gave you this command. Notice this is an apostolic command. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Yet we hear the same uh, that some of you, I'm sorry, are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. We command those people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and to work and earn their own living. You say, well, if the Bible says that, how come we're committed to give to the poor? Because we give to the poor out of mercy. We don't judge how they got into poverty. We just give them out of mercy, but also we want to call them to know Jesus so they can learn to work by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, and this is the thing I think where all of us need to think Paul says a Christian work ethic isn't just about, it's not just about recognizing and repenting of stealing. It's not just about working hard. It's about us seeking to be a blessing to other people. What does he say? Verse 28, he says, Let him uh, work with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Some of the most diligent people I know, some of the most diligent Christians I know, are working hard, for themselves. This is tough. It's tough because I don't even know how to sort of lay out an application of this because I really feel like it's something that you're gonna have to wrestle with God in specifically. But let me just say this. If when you work, you're not thinking, okay, Lord, this is all your money. What do you want me to do with it? I think you're missing a Christian work ethic. I think there needs to be in us a heart that says, okay, Lord, this money is for your purposes. Now, some of those purposes are, are really obvious. The Bible says if you don't uh, meet the needs of your household, you're worse than an unbeliever. You've got to feed your family. You've got to house your family. But how many of us have been guilty to say, I'm meeting the needs of my household by making sure they have every new toy for Christmas so I get into debt, so I have no money to give to anybody else. That's not obedient to that command. That's just not being intentional with why God has you work. How many of us are guilty of seeing, okay, I've spent all that I need to spend, I've spent all that I've wanted to spend, what do I have left? I'll give from that. I'm not just talking about the church, I'm talking about in general. Now, I have to say, too, I have to say this, too, I, I, um, I stay away from the church finances. I don't, I don't, I, ha- I want to have as little to do with the finances as possible. I don't know who gives what, per se, I don't know. The, the issue is, though, because I still have to, like, do the transfers and pay the bills, I do see who does online giving, okay? Based on online giving, the younger people give way more than the older people, I'm just saying. I'm saying because millennials get a bad rap and they always say, oh, those guys are snowflakes and they don't do anything there. They always whine. They give. Some of the older people do not. Now, I understand the temptation. I'm almost 50 and have like, hardly any retirement and there's the temptation to go, maybe I shouldn't give and I should just kind of make sure my Sarah and I are taken care of. Maybe that's more of a priority. So I understand the temptation. I wrestle with this kind of stuff too, but it's fact. The point is this. It's no good for us to say, yes, I'm going to put off the old man. I'm going to put on the new. I believe I can change and then never see any practical change. It's pointless. God wants to change us practically. He wants to transform our communication, He wants to transform our emotions, He wants to transform our work ethic. Do you want to be transformed? Do you want to be changed?